and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Annie Duke is the best-selling author of Thinking and Bets and How to Decide. And I will tell you, I've worked and talked with many in sports who love Thinking and Bets and use it all the time. So, That book comes highly recommended, not just from me, but from others as well. Uh, And her new book, Quit, is going to be the subject of a lot of our conversation today. Uh, So highly recommend checking that out. If you're not familiar with Annie, she is a corporate speaker and consultant in the decision-making space. She's also a former professional poker player, where she won more than $4 million in tournament poker before retiring from the game in 2012. So we'll talk about all of the quitting that Annie has done in her life. And a lot of the origins of this book come from learning poker and learning how important it is to know when to fold them, so to speak, 
when it comes to playing that game. She's also the co-founder of the Alliance for Decision Education, a nonprofit whose mission it is to improve lives by empowering students through decision skill education. Look, you're going to love Annie. She's likable. She's very, very sharp. And she is someone who has multiple identities. She's back in school where she's learning and she's teaching. And at her core, she really loves research and education and not just learning, but also teaching. So this conversation, as as she at one point says, felt like therapy because I think I asked her some questions that she's not necessarily getting on her book tour, but I think those are, are usually the best questions to learn from experts like Annie. So here is Annie Duke. Annie, excited to chat with you today. I always come prepared with an with a starting question, and I okay. had my starting question prepared, and then you held up your wrist and told me that you just broke your wrist playing I tennis. I so. Think. So we have to start there because I think a lot of what we're going to talk about today is is your wonderful book, Quit, uh, which I thoroughly enjoyed, and uh, we'll, we'll certainly cover that. But here you are, you, you break your wrist in the middle of a match, and you continue playing through it. So can you talk a little bit about why you continued rather than quitting and, and walking off and what went into yeah. your, your thinking? So this is a really good example, actually, of when you would stick and when you would quit. So um, this, let me just set the stage. This isn't just me playing with my partner. This is a team setting. So the team goes out and you play six, six, you have six teams. And so every point really matters. We're winning the division. And um, so I have in this particular case, I have an obligation to 10 other people. All right. So let me just start with that. Um, so at the time that the injury happened, and I would like to say it was an amazing shot. So well, I was can, you, can you describe the shot? Give us sure. the shot. So I'm, I'm poaching. And so I love net and I'm poaching and I jump up really high to get a very high ball to cut it off. Um, so my feet are very far off the ground at this point. Um, so I grab it and I hit the shot. Oh, I hit a winner. I just want to say that also. Um, but it's a little bit farther behind me. So now my feet aren't going to, they sort of don't come down on the court basically. I land on my the left side of my butt, which was actually quite lucky because the injury would have been a lot worse if I didn't do that. And then down on my wrist. So let, first of all, let me just say I'm right-handed. It was a left-handed injury. Um, I have a two-handed backhand. It's my preferred backhand, but I also have a one-handed backhand. I can hit a one-handed backhand slice, which also becomes important for whether I'm going to continue this match or not. Um, the other thing that was actually really important to consider was were we winning the match or not. So we're winning, which means that if I quit, I'm, I'm at that point, I'm giving up that line for the rest of the team. And, and it's a time match. If you were losing, do you think you would have quit? I would have stopped. Interesting. For sure. Because, because it, it, there's a big difference. If I'm losing, I have to think about, can I come from behind using a slice backhand, you know, with an injury uh, probably not. And so it wouldn't have really been worth my while to continue, but can I go to a slice backhand in this particular situation against this team where we were ahead by quite a bit at that point? Um, yes, because I know it's a timed match. So at this point in the match, I've got to get through about 20 minutes. What was your teammate saying to you? 
she's like, are you okay? They, you know, obviously everybody let me sort of gather my wits. I sprayed icy hot on my wrist. Um, they gave me a second to sort of get myself together. Um, and they were all very nice about it, you know? So, um, so I went to my one-handed backhand slice. So I actually didn't even realize like how much it hurt. So I hit one backhand with two hands and I went, oh gosh, this is actually worse than I thought. I sort of just thought I had bruised it. Um, at this point, I think it's a sprain. And I said, well, I'm just, I just walked over to my partner and I said, just so you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to touch the racket with my right hand. So I'm only going to hit backhand slice. So I let her know that. So she'd understand what shot was going to come her way. And I said, all my volleys are going to be one-handed, which they are anyway. Um, and so I just didn't, I basically, except for to toss the ball for my serve, I just really didn't use my right hand. And I knew it was a very limited period of time. Uh, and I wasn't going to do more damage to it because of the way that I chose to play. So did win the line, which was good. So our team won four to two because you're counting by line. Um, and then as soon as I got off the match, I told my partner, um, I said, well, who do you want to play with next week? Because it's not going to be me. <laughs> so, do, you, do you play singles a lot too or mostly? Doubles? I used to. I used to. And then during the pandemic, I actually quit singles. So what happened was I used to play a lot of singles. In fact, I played exclusively singles till maybe four years ago. Um, was allergic to the net, you know, so on and so forth. And then during the pandemic, because it was an outdoor activity and by outdoors, I mean, like even in January when it was 29 degrees, we were all bundling up and playing outside because, you know, you could, you nobody was vaccinated and, um, it was, it became a total like way to physical exercise, but also in a lot of ways, my social life. So anyway, after the, after the vaccines, the, you know, we start back up with USTA tennis and the very first match I play is a singles match and I win it. And I walk off the court and I tell my captain, don't put me on singles anymore. And she's like, what? <laughs> like, why you, you just won the match. And I said, well, my values have changed. And what I realized during the pandemic is that the thing that one of the things that um, tennis is really giving me is kind of like that social aspect to it, uh, which you particularly get in doubles where you're cooperating with someone on the court with you and it's really fun and singles can be incredibly lonely. And I just realized kind of during the pandemic, like it was a big part of the game for me and I didn't want to go out and be playing alone on the court. So I quit singles and I haven't, I've played singles for fun since then, but I haven't played like USTA singles since then. So, yeah, so that was, I mean, I think it's a good example. It's like, you want to stick to it if it's worthwhile and you want to quit if it's not. So, and also you don't want to uh, risk doing something that's going to keep you, that's going to make it so you can't play for a really long time afterwards. So I had both of those things figured out because we were winning and because it, there was somebody else, you know, there were other people involved, uh, it was worthwhile for me to continue as long as I was, wasn't going to do more injury to the wrist. And because I could go just to playing only with my right hand, I, I knew that wasn't going to do anything worse to my wrist because I was only playing with my right hand at that point. So had I not had a one-handed backhand, which a lot of people don't, but I do because I learned, I started with a one-handed backhand. I picked up a two-handed backhand when I was like 12. So I have a perfectly good one-handed backhand. If I didn't, I would have quit because I do, I, I could do that. And if I had only been playing for me, like if I'd been in a USTA match, I would have just retired the game and said, I don't want to play anymore. 
but it was like 20 minutes. I can do this. It, you know, I'm obligated to the team and I'm not going to do more injury. It's interesting. I often reference self-determination theory, the idea of, you know, why are people determined to work or, or do whatever they're going to do? And uh, it suggests that competence, autonomy, and relatedness are the three main drivers. And as I hear you talk about relatedness, this notion of being part of something bigger than yourself, I think about two of our last three podcast guests. One was Tara Vanderveer, the Stanford women's basketball coach, and the other was Bronco Mendenhall, who walked away from the University of Virginia football. He had like mm. a $4 million salary to take a year sabbatical. Uh, Tara takes two months off in the summer to uh, go to a lake in, I think it's in Minneapolis, and get away from coaching. And so both Bronco and Tara, which I wasn't even thinking of when I was booking them to record, use sabbaticals to a certain degree. Bronco's taking a full year off from football coaching, which in that sport is not a normal thing, yeah. especially when you have a job and a big conference. And then Tara, once again, in, in that world of college sports, they don't really walk away for two months to just be by nature and by lake. And so it got me thinking about, as you're talking about relationships and the reason why you like playing doubles and the pandemic and being with people, uh, what are your thoughts on sabbatical or taking time off instead of, you know, saying I'm quitting? Because Bronco, he did quit UVA, but he's saying I'm going to take a year off and then I'm, he wants to coach next year. Uh, he's pretty clear on that. Do you have a, a thought on that? So I think I think sabbaticals are actually really helpful for the reason that, um, it, you know, one of the things that I, I talk about a lot is that it's very hard to make decisions when you're in it, number one. So what does that mean? Like being in it means when you're actually facing down the decision, right? Should I walk away, which can feel very permanent. It can feel like a failure. Um, it can feel like you don't, that you're abandoning your identity, right? So this would be particularly true for sports figures. And you could hear this with um, like Serena Williams, who what refused to say she was retiring. She said she was evolving. And then Lindsey Vaughn, who... I mean, gosh, if anybody earned the right to just say, yeah, I'm retiring, I'm done. Um, when she decided to stop, as she said, I'm using her word, stop professional skiing, she followed it with, but just for everybody out there, I'm not quitting. Yeah, um, why, and do, I think, why do people, why do, why are people afraid of the word? Well, so I, I think, I think that first of all, we, we in a lot of ways, we, we uh, equate quitting with like giving up or failing um, number one. So I think that there's this issue of sort of what we would call external validity, which is how do other people judge us? Do they see us as valid? Right. There's also issues of internal validity for us. So, so we feel those same things as well. So you can kind of think about like, um, if I'm losing at something, if I quit, then for sure, I cannot recover the cause. Right. So that doesn't feel particularly good for us. Um, there's all these like, what ifs you kind of want to butt up against the certainty that there's no way that you could actually make it work. And if you look at Lindsey Vaughn, you know, I think had enough injuries that she had probably butted up against that certainty, but for like Serena, you could see this as an issue, right? Like she did get to the, I think she got to the quarterfinals, right. In the, um, in the U S open or the round of 16, I think she got pretty far. And like, maybe for her, she's like, if I just worked a little harder, if I just, it's very hard for us to feel like we're closing that door. Like we're never going to recover the cause, but then also, and I certainly experienced this with retiring from poker for somebody like Serena or Lindsey Vaughn or Tom Brady, right? 
um, it's so part of your identity and it's very hard. That's the hardest thing to quit. It's like, if I quit this, then who am I? Right. And, and never mind, by the way, that generally there's all sorts of other bits of your identity. Like, you know, Serena has a lot of other stuff going on. She's a mom. Um, I believe she's a pretty successful investor um, and, you know, variety of other things. Uh, you know, for me, I was a poker player, but I was also a speaker, consultant, cognitive scientist, so on and so forth. But my my identity was mostly tied in with being a poker player. And I think that's true, like of a Tom Brady or whatever. And it's just very hard to walk away from that. So where so when we're in the moment of having to face that down, we tend to be pretty bad at it. So that's kind of piece number one. And then piece number two is that when we're when we're actually engaged in something, when we're pursuing a particular goal or um uh, or like, you know, we're pursuing a sport or a, we're in a job, uh, it's very hard for us to actually see very clearly what the other opportunities are that might be available to us or to see what the, um, what those things could help us do in terms of gaining ground toward our own values. And then the third thing is that um, we tend not to do a lot of reevaluation of why we're doing what we're doing or whether we really enjoy it or whether it aligns with our, our values when we're in it, once we've already started it. We'll do that on the engagement part. Like as I'm thinking about starting something, I think would I enjoy it? But when we're in it, we tend to not do that reevaluation very well. So sabbaticals can be incredibly helpful with this problem because basically what you're saying is I'm going to put a pause on it. And during that pause, like during that year off, First of all, you're going to feel what it feels like not to, to have that be your identity, which I think is good because what you find out is it's not so bad. There's all sorts of other parts of you. It allows you to clarify what your own values are. Was it that I did not like the place I was coaching at or do I not like coaching, right, as an example? So it helps you to figure that out. And then usually during a sabbatical, you're exploring other opportunities, other things that you might do with that time. And I think that this helps us get out of the decision in a way that then gives us the space, sort of like a trial run to be able to say, do I want to quit? And so I think that this is pretty common. So a sabbatical would be a voluntary way to do that. There are involuntary ways to do that. So I think that the pandemic like involuntarily created a sabbaticals for people. <laughs> you know, I know it did for me in terms of traveling for speaking. And during that, what I would call an involuntary sabbatical from traveling for speaking, I discovered I hate traveling for speaking. I love speaking, but the traveling part I completely hate. So I don't do it anymore unless it's on the Acela Corridor. Like I just don't like fly out to California anymore because I realized that from like my forced sabbatical. And the other thing that I'm curious to get your opinion on is the idea of pivot and uh, the idea of maybe it's not I'm quitting but I'm going to pivot it to, Hey, I'm going to. Yeah. Pivoting is quitting. Same thing. It's the same thing. I mean, so here's the thing, you know, and you can see this with like this idea of I'm evolving. I'm starting a new chapter. I'm pivoting. The word quit is so odious to us because I think partly because of all the things that are associated with it, that we really like to bubble wrap it. You know, like I want to wrap it up and serve it soft with all these different euphemisms, right? So, um, I mean, I, I mean, if you think about it, like when Serena was retiring from tennis, although I hear she might be coming back, but when she decided to retire from tennis, 
you know, and she didn't want to say like, I'm quitting. So, so what did she say? She I'm evolving. Okay. But you're stopping something. So I just want to be very clear that the definition of quit is stopping something that you have started. So that could be go under the category of maybe what we would think of as a pivot. Like I was developing one product and now I'm developing another one. I was pursuing a particular sales strategy and now I've discovered information that that sales strategy isn't working. So maybe I'm pivoting to a different message, you know, different messaging strategy. Maybe I'm trying to target a different persona at a company, like whatever, like things that we would sort of say pivoting, but they're all quitting. It's you start something and you stop it. So I just don't, I don't think that we should be using these euphemisms. I think we should just say we're quitting it because honestly, it's a good thing to quit things when you discover that they're not working for you anymore. Yeah. And if I hear that correctly, a pivot is a type of quitting potentially. Like you could say, um, all right, use your example. We're we're changing the product, but you're still stopping that product or uh, Serena even if she's still playing tennis with her friends, she's still she's quit. not playing professional. She stopped tennis. playing professional tennis. So it and is. By the quit. way, and this is important because she's talking about coming back now. Maybe I don't know if she will. I mean, obviously Tom Brady did, right? Like he retired and then he decided to unretire. This is another thing about quitting that we need to realize is that um, just like any decision you make, it's not permanent. Yes, yeah, so they quit and then they came back. And then they decided to unquit quitting, which is yeah. fine. So the way that I would say it is, is like we, I think that we tend to use quitting in the sense of like, if we think about a basketball metaphor, leaving the court, right? Like walking off the court. So it'd be like leaving your job, shutting your startup down, retiring from a sport, right? So we we sort of think about it that way. Um, but it's just as much a, a, a quit to pivot on the court. In other words, you were heading in one direction, and then you pivoted and you switched to another direction. So you started going in one direction, you stopped going in that direction and you now go in another direction. And so uh, these like small quits actually become really, really important. And you can see those like, for example, in poker all the time, right? Where, um, you know, maybe I was going to bluff you, but then I stop. Have I gotten up and quit the game? No. Have I like retired from poker? No. But I was going to, you know, I was heading in one direction where I was running a bluff and then you, there's some information that happens either. Maybe it's a new card that gets dealt or it's a particular way that you're behaving. And then I quit that and I I decide to do something else. Right. So um, I, I think that we need to get, com- I honestly think we need to get comfortable with the word. And so, And somebody said to me, like, why didn't you call the book pivot? And I'm like, well, because that's part of the problem. What's wrong with quit? If if you discover the thing you're doing isn't working, then why why are you scared to say that you're quitting? Shouldn't you be like shouting that loud and proud? Like, look how smart I am. I started this thing and then I discovered new information. The new information wasn't great news, you know? And so I quit or I started this thing and then I was really great at it. And I was an amazing tennis player like Federer. And part of what I loved about the game was being able to compete at the highest levels. And then I got older and I couldn't compete at a level that made me happy anymore. So I quit. Yay. Like what's wrong with that? That sounds pretty good. Well, in the imagery that you painted as someone 
I, I watch a lot of basketball. It, it, the imagery of that makes complete sense to me. It's a start and a stop and you move in a different direction. And so I do, I agree with you. I think quit is a more powerful word that we need to take ownership over. And um, so I appreciate that you didn't call it pivot. I think it would have been a cop out and it, it wouldn't have been truth is how I, how I see it. Um, for you, as you think about, you know, what to quit, what not to quit, it sounds like values play a big part. Huge role. Have you ever quit something that you did have your values aligned to and you quit it maybe for the wrong reasons and there's regret? I've had Dan Pink on the podcast, spent a lot of time with Dan and he talks about the power of regret. Another word that we say is negative and he makes a strong case for the um, yeah. the usefulness of it. Is there ever a time where you actually quit something and upon further reflection, it's like, you know what? I actually quit that for the wrong reasons. Maybe it was external pressure, but it, it actually did align with my values. And I regret that I didn't stay with that for longer. Yeah. So like, so here's one of the thing, like things is that I think that what you're talking about, that feeling that you're talking about is part of what stops us from quitting. Um, For the reason that if you quit at the right moment, that particular what if that you're talking about is always going to be available to you because it isn't going to be a dead certainty that you wouldn't have been happy in the thing that you were doing before. So you can think about like um, if you're climbing Mount Everest, the time to turn around is not when the blizzard is already upon you. The time to turn around is when you sort of look ahead of, you know, you can sort of see what the weather's looking like off in the distance, but you're totally fine. And, uh, but you can see that the probability that a blizzard is about to be upon you is going to be too great and you ought to turn around now. Now, what that leaves open, obviously, is that weather is weird and the path of the storm could change. And maybe you could have actually made it to the summit, but, you know, the calculus changed. And I think that this is something that actually prevents us from quitting is that that fear of having the regret of like, maybe I quit and I shouldn't have done it. And, that, you know, for the wrong reasons and all of this stuff stops us from quitting. Um, so I can tell you, like, I mean, I, I mean, I can certainly give you examples of that from my own life because I have absolutely felt that um, when I quit. So I started off as a cognitive scientist doing five years worth of PhD work at the University of Pennsylvania. And right at the end, I was going out for my job talks, which is academic for job interviews to get a tenure track position at a university. And I had been struggling with a chronic illness, uh, a stomach issue that became acute. And I actually ended up in the hospital for two weeks. So I had to cancel my job talks and take a year off. So I did. And during that year was when I discovered poker. I started playing poker and super duper loved it. Really loved it. What did, and, you, you, know, lo what did you love about poker when you first started it? Um, so... I, as a cognitive scientist, I had been studying, you know, learning and decision-making under uncertainty and hello poker. <laughs> um, so it was just like this really fast paced, high stakes problem to solve. That was a real world example of the problems that we all face when we're trying to make decisions, when we know very little in comparison to all there is to be known. And there's like a very strong influence of luck. So I thought that was just a super interesting problem and I loved it. And um, I ended up not going back to graduate school, but I think I didn't go back for the right reasons. Like I, I, because I was sick and I, you know, I just, I kind of didn't feel well. And 
poker was good. It was a play, poker was not on television. It wasn't, it wasn't on the internet back then. It was, you were sort of like on the edges where like nobody was going to see you. And I just honestly wasn't feeling well. And I think that it, it felt kind of good to me to sort of be my own boss and not have, you know, to answer it to anybody or expectations or that kind of thing. And I, I think I was a little bit hiding in poker um, because there was nothing about academics that didn't align with my values. I loved my advisors. Um, I liked doing research. Now, did poker work out for me? Absolutely. In a huge way. Um, did I end up back in academics? Yes. I'm in fact back at UPenn now. And um, I teach exec ed at Wharton. I do research at Penn. Um, so I did end up back there, but it took a long time. It took decades for me to get back. Um, so, I mean, I could look back and I have thought about like, well, what if I had stayed in academics? Like maybe that would have been a better path for me. Um, it felt sort of cowardly for me to quit and not go back. You know, like, and those are all of the kinds of things that make it really hard for us to quit. I felt like a failure. I felt like I had let my advisors down and they had put all this time and effort into me and I had put all this time and effort into my training and I was just abandoning it to go play this game. And I felt shame about it. And I did wonder, like, would I have been a happier person if I had stayed in academics? That's part of the hard thing about walking away from stuff. But it's also, if you think about it, Brian... Isn't that the hard thing about starting things too? As I hear you tell your story, I know your brother was also playing poker, but what was your, what was your family saying to you when you're, you know, this close to graduating, you'd worked your ass off, you'd spend a lot of time on it um, and sort of walking away or quitting. Uh, uh, like what was, what was the feedback you were getting from them? So my brother had already disappointed them so thoroughly. Right, right. <laughs> that by the time I came around, child, I think they were right? sort of fine with it. Yeah. Um, my dad, my dad who who had a PhD, was a little like, "Don't you just want to go and defend your dissertation?" And I understand why he said that. I actually probably should have taken his advice. I am defending my dissertation in the spring, though, so I I am actually finishing. Dad. So you can- there you go. Finally, well, finally, Dad. finally get to make him proud. Yeah, he's very happy about it. He's very excited. Um, uh, but other than that, they were fine because, it, the, you know, unlike everybody else at that time, they actually did understand that poker was like a totally legit thing to spend your time on. Um, everybody else kept asking me one of two things. One was, is your husband really rich? Which is like super misogynistic. <laughs> And I was like, no, <laughs> um, I, I'm supporting really like I'm, I'm the income. Um, <laughs> and the other, the other was, have you thought about Gamblers Anonymous, which is just like a misunderstanding of what poker is. Right. So it was some combination of misunderstanding of poker or like, is your husband supporting you? So, um, but my, but my parents actually did actually understand what it was because of my brother. So that was, um, so that wasn't a bad thing. My dad was just sort of thought like in a, in a little bit like the way of um, you've come so far, like you've just got this little tiny bit to go, sort of like I had 20 minutes left in my tennis match. Like, don't you just want to defend, um, you know, and honestly, he was right about that. I should have just done that. <laughs> you you mentioned him having a PhD, your brother with poker. You also mentioned identity earlier and how we often wrap our identity around the thing that we do. Um, when you think about your identity today, how do you think about it? I feel like my, I, I feel like 
some of the lessons that I've taken from my life, because I've quit a lot of stuff. Um, so I, I'm, so let me just say, I've I quit a lot of stuff, but I'm also obviously very gritty. Um, so I did stay in graduate school for five years. It I went through my qualifying exams. Like all of those things are take quite a bit of grit. I played poker for 18 years. It was, it was not only, it's not only a tough game to make a living in, but it's a particularly tough place for a woman to be. So, um, so obviously really gritty. Like I stuck with that for a long time. I won world championships. Um, so on and so forth. I started speaking and consulting in 2002. I overlapped that with poker and I'm still doing that. Right. So I'm perfectly capable of sticking to things. I mean, I played a match with a broken wrist, right? I like, I think that I have enough grit over here. Thank you very much. But I also quit things a lot. And I think that part of the reason why I I can do that and I can sort of figure out when something kind of isn't for me anymore and walk away from it pretty easily is that I don't, I think I stopped after that experience of quitting graduate school. I stopped tying my, so I, my identity so tightly in with what I did. Now with poker, it was a little bit hard just because I was on television doing it and people would like stop me in airports and be like, aren't you Annie Duke? Um so it's, it's, the world is sort of foisting that identity on you a little bit. So that was probably a little scarier for me to walk away from. But um, I had already been doing this other stuff that I could walk toward. So now the way that I kind of think about myself is honestly, like, if I had to tell you what my identity is separate apart from being a mom, which is like my most important identity to me, um, is I, I actually think about myself as someone who loves shiny objects and I like to go explore stuff and dive deep into things that I find cool and interesting. So that's a pretty like all purpose identity that has to do more with just like curiosity and wanting to explore the world. And, and in fact, it's kind of interesting because if you look at my life from sort of the day I stepped into graduate school until today, I've really spent my whole life thinking about decision-making under uncertainty. It's the thing that I'm probably the most curious about in my life. And I never stopped doing that. I just sort of realized like you can do that in all sorts of different ways. And none of the ways that you explore that topic need to have anything to do with your identity. Right. So that's kind of like, I think that I sort of have it more loosely tied, if that makes sense. Yeah. You mentioned being a mother. I've got two kids and one of the things I'm constantly wondering about is I really believe kids are born with curiosity. I think we all are born with it. And somewhere along the way, our systems stifle it for a lot of people. Um, for you, as you think about nurturing your children and valuing curiosity, what do you do to try to nurture their curiosity rather than stifle it? I, I mean, I think if you saw our conversations over a meal, you'd realize like I have very curious children. Um, I don't know. I feel like this is so like we're having a psychotherapy session. This is awesome. So I think, I think the thing I did was get out of their way to tell you the truth. Like, I honestly think that that's what I did. Like, they had all sorts of interests. I was perfectly willing to talk to them about it, those if they wanted books. Like one of my daughters just became really interested. She decided she wanted to be able to read anime in Japanese when she was young. And we just got her kanji books so that she could start to learn, you know, that stuff. I mean, like I just sort of, I just sort of like got out of the way, but then also sort of gave them 
the support and the ear, like I let them chat on about like philosophy or whatever they were exploring on YouTube. I don't know. Um, but I think that one of the things that I did in terms of getting out of their way, and this gets sort of into the psychotherapy side of things is that, um, I felt there was a lot in my household growing up, there were, there were a lot of like a variety of different pressures, some sort of spoken and unspoken. So, so my dad sort of unintentionally, for example, kind of let us know pretty clearly that like, it was weak if you, um, weren't like working all the time through any kind of circumstances. So there were sort of two ways that he did that. One was very proud and out loud about never taking a sick day, which sort of as an adult, I look back on, I say, well, that's not good. Right. But he never took a sick day. Um, he was also, by the way, a very big tennis player and he would be in these tournaments and he had like a potassium imbalance. So he would end up cramping and it would be like the semifinals. He'd be cramping. He'd be sweating through the soles of his shoes. You could see like wet footprints on the clay courts um, when he was playing. And then he would go to the hospital because he'd be cramped up, get out tons of electrolytes and then come back and play the finals the next day. Like there were all, there were sort of those things going on. Um, but also it was very clear the kinds of things they felt would bring value to the world and the kinds of things that they wouldn't, um, the expectation of what types of grades you were supposed to be getting. And I want to be clear, like certainly at least on my father's part, I don't think that that was intentional. I think it's just kind of like who he is as a human being. And it sort of oozed out of him. Like I, he wasn't saying uh, like, you know, some people do like, you know, you're a failure if you don't get good grades. It's just that that was very sort of understood, if that makes sense. Um, and I think that that's a very hard thing in terms of fostering curiosity, because you sort of get this idea that there's like one path. So like, as an example, I really loved math. I was good at it. Um, and I was an English major in college. I was English in psychology. And, you know, I look back on that and that's something where I really wish that someone had been pushing me into math, but my, my dad had such a love of the language arts and sort of liberal arts. And it was very clear the way he communicated to us that he sort of felt like that was how to bring value to the world. And I think that that can stop you from just sort of exploring the things that you're super curious about. It's like, not like I, you know, didn't like reading T.S. Eliot or something like that. It's just, I was really curious about math and I sort of felt like I was being pushed away from that. So with my kids, I really just tried to say to them, like, you be you and whatever you're interested in, I'm going to support you in it. I don't have any expectation of you like following in my footsteps or anything like that. I hope you don't feel that. I don't think there's any one way to be successful. The only thing that I care about in terms of your success is that like you're happy and that you're doing something that excites you and that you really love. And I don't care if you're making $2 or $2 million. It doesn't really matter to me. Um, or if you're famous or not famous, like go find your joy. Um, and I hopefully I've done that. I hopefully, hopefully that's worked. That's what I've tried to do. I want to come back to fame, but before I do, my dad, very successful from a business standpoint, and um, I've got two brothers, so I'm one of three boys, and all of us are like pretty decent humans contributing to society, seem to be well-adjusted, uh, happy people, um, and so my people often will ask my dad, like, hey, what did you do? And my mom, my mom had 
probably a bigger influence on how we were raised than my dad, but my dad had a massive influence and they'll ask my parents and they'll, and they'll say, if they ask me like, what did your parents do to raise the three of you? I'll say, be good people. Like just mm-hmm. like, it was more character. It was say, thank you. Hold the door, say, please. You know, we weren't really allowed to curse when we were growing up. I, I don't know how I feel about that role, but that, that was like, there were just, there were things they would say no to. I was the last of my friends to have a cell phone. I wasn't allowed to have Michael Jordan shoes. Like they were very intentional and thoughtful for how they raised me and my brothers, but it was never about you have to be great at something or you have to be passionate about something. They um, let us sort of find our way. And my older brother was very strong academically, but struggled socially. I was very strong socially and very mediocre, um, probably being generous to myself academically. Uh, and my younger brother was kind of a mix and they treated all of us different, but held us all accountable to a certain mm-hmm. standard. And I think like that has really stuck with me. And and as I'm hearing you and how you're raising your children, it just reminds me of of some of what my parents took in the approach. Fame is something interesting too, because my dad became more well-known when I was a sophomore in college. And um, I got to observe and witness fame and the good parts of it and, and the bad parts of it. And you told a story earlier about being in an airport and someone saying, hey, you're Annie Duke. Can you talk about like when your kids ask you what your view on fame is, how do you respond to them? They've never asked me that question. Hmm. Interestingly enough, I think I'm just their mom. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so I think it's very different being a woman who's well-known. Uh, so I think they've probably seen some of the not-so-desirable um, things about fame. I think that's just generally true of women who are famous. I think um, how they're treated is different than men. Um, Can you explain that a little more? Uh. So, well, first of all, a lot of comments about like how you look in a way that, you know, I mean, it's like I'd be sitting next to somebody like Doral Brunson, who is quite large um, and not necessarily a handsome man. Uh, and people would be talking about like how I look, right? Like um, also one of the things that's just kind of true is that the a lot of the qualities that if you were to use them to describe a man would have a positive valence will have a negative valence in applied to a woman. So a good example of that is ambitious. So when you say that a man is ambitious, generally you're saying something good about them. If you say a woman's ambitious, you're saying something bad about them. So like I would have people come up to me and I would watch them talk to like a male player next to me and say, Oh, you're so intense. And competitive and I like you're so scary at the table you're amazing and then they turn to me and be like because now I'm in, I'm not away from the table you know so I'm acting differently but you have such a nice smile why don't you smile more hmm. so like you know that's hard and then obviously when you start to translate that to the internet and the way that you get treated by sort of anonymous people um it's hard it's not an easy thing so um so I think that my kids definitely saw some of that because um, it, it's all online and they're online and whatever. Um, I mean, but look, there were great things that came from, there are great things that come from fame too, right? Like I know a lot of people that I wouldn't otherwise know, um, really cool people that I wouldn't otherwise know. Um, 
I think that a lot of my success as a cognitive science writer comes because I was famous as a poker player. So not anymore. I don't think that's true of like my latest book or something, because I think people now know me as someone who writes in this space, but certainly for Thinking in Bets, which was my first general audience book. Look, I don't think that people would have necessarily written that from some like random cognitive science lady. I think that, you know, a lot of the initial pickup of that book was because, oh, this is kind of cool. It's a professional poker player talking about um, decision-making under uncertainty. So I think that that, you know, and I don't think I would have necessarily gotten the book contract in the first place if I didn't, if I didn't have some cachet from something else. So I think it's like everything else. There's like good and bad that comes from it. But, um, you know, it doesn't matter sort of what arena you're in. I think that women just get sort of get treated differently who are famous. And, you know, there's lots and lots of work that's been done on like stars and sort of like these cycles of like people falling in love with female stars and then really going after you saw this with like Taylor Swift is someone this has happened to or Jennifer Lawrence or Anne Hathaway, you know, where it's like the initial sort of like honeymoon phase and then they're a bitch or whatever. I think that that's quite hard. Um, Serena is somebody, for example, where like her looks are just like such a topic of conversation. Like why? Like she's a, she's just a great player. Like why are you talking about her looks? Right? It's just kind of weird. Lindsey Vaughn too. You mentioned earlier. Yeah, exactly. So you know things that have nothing. You know that would never happen. I mean, I don't know. Like take a look at Aaron Rodgers. Like nobody's telling him to comb his hair. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm watching. I'm sure you're watching the Philadelphia Phillies right now, and um, you know those guys all bearded. None of them hair. look like they combed their hair. Nobody cares. <laughs> look like hockey right? players. Right? Like nobody cares. Imagine yeah. if that were a woman. People were like, "Oh, why isn't she taking care of herself? Like sure. she should go get a blowout." Sure. I mean, like I don't want this to get. I mean, I, I don't want it to become like a big thing about this. Um, but it's just like that's just true. Like it's it, whatever. It's just true. You mentioned sort of there's good parts of fame and then there's negative parts. Sure, which is and, true of everything. True, and one of my favorite lines in your book is the opposite of a great virtue is also a great virtue. And I think one of the things I really appreciate, you brought it up earlier with the grit comment. And of course, there's someone right down the street from you who has become famous for her work in grit and Angela Duckworth. Um, like I wrote a whole book on polarity because I think we really don't talk about things that we seem like selfishness we say is bad but selfishness but it can be very good yeah, yeah like you you actually i think need to be selfish if you're ever going to be selfless or we say stay in the present but future thinking is essential for creativity and i even talk about humble think about think about what a mess the world would be if everybody only stayed in the present it's a disaster nothing nothing would ever happen you know you can go watch monks. and by the way to dan pink's point sometimes you have to go to the past too right hundred percent. Um, and I even talked about humility and arrogance and arrogant. Yeah. When I say that word, people like lose it on me and say, how can you have arrogance? I'm like, well, if you have humility and preparation, you can earn arrogance in performance. Um, but for you, I love how you talk about quit and grit and how you mentioned even earlier, like I have plenty of grit. Like you don't get to accomplish what I've accomplished with, uh, without grit. Um, 
but what's your thought on why we seem to struggle with having the capacity to hold both? Like, why, why do we struggle? Even when I wrote my book, people are like, no, just focus on the performance mindset instead of the preparation and the performance mindset. Um, we tend to, you can see it in our, in our writing. We tend to love the one thing and then gravitate to the one thing rather than hold space for two truths. Um, what in our psychology, and I want you to, you know, you've got the psychology background, like what in it that we struggle with holding the space for two truths rather than um, our, our, we seem wired to want like one clean thing to focus yeah, on. Yeah. So nuance is hard for us. It creates, um, creates, um, it creates demand on your processing capacity. So we tend to be very dichotomous in the way that we think. Um, uh, you can kind of think about it as just like, again, it's like reducing processing load, right? It's like easier to think like one thing's good and one thing's bad or one thing's desirable, or one thing's not. And when we think about like the work and biases and heuristics, heuristics, which are sh- rules of thumb or shortcuts, that's a lot of what is happening there, right? Is we're, we're sort of always taking these cognitive shortcuts to to just reduce cognitive load. And I think this is one of those places where where that is really true. Um why grit is the winner. Uh, That is a little bit of a chicken in the egg problem. Um, I can tell you there's a lot of biases, cognitive biases that are lined up behind grit. In other words, buying us against biasing bias. Sorry. In other words, biasing us against quitting. Uh, There's a lot of them. Um, Sunk cost effect, endowment effect, status quo bias, omission, commission bias, um, opportunity cost neglect, uh, optimism bias, uh, even things that are motivational, uh, which will go under the rubric of like escalation of commitment, um, loss aversion, sure loss aversion. I mean, you know, the way our mental accounting works, give you a lot of reasons that we're biased against quitting. So the question then is, are those biases built in for some reason, you know, um, or, you know, are, are they partly there because of, uh, the way that we really sort of like think about people who stick it out as heroes of our stories, right? Like you can see this reflected in the English language. Now I would suspect that um, the biases against quitting are probably the egg here. Um, They came first, Um, but it's not clear. So what, I mean, just think about like from a narrative standpoint, right? If you think about, um, the sort of heroic tales that that are part of our culture it's something like king arthur right it's it's the people who stick it out and face grave danger who are the heroes of our story and the ones who run away right which is a form of quitting um you know they're losers and they're lily livered and they're weak-willed and they've let people down and that's true even interestingly enough in situations where it's very clear that quitting was the right choice and yet the people who stick to it are the protagonists, right? Like they're they're the drivers of the narrative arc, the people that we have great admiration for. So, you know, I think one of the one of the stories that I love that I think shows this problem, um, and it's actually the one that's demonstrating the opposite of a great virtue is actually a virtue, it's actually a great virtue also. So um so this is a story. So we think, you know, Mount, obviously, if you're going to climb Mount Everest, you have to be a pretty gritty person. Let's be clear about that. So there's all sorts of stories of Mount Everest, whether it's like Sir Edmund Hillary or whatever, like these really amazing stories of grit. 
Um, so, but I love this one story on Mount Everest. It's a story of quit. And this one is three climbers, Stuart Hutchinson, John Tasky, um, and Lucas Sitsky. And they're part of a climbing expedition. The ones became very popular in the nineties. Um, so, you know, back then I, it's much more now, but I think at the time it was like 70 or $75,000 to be able to go on one of these expeditions, obviously months and months and months and months of training. Um, so these three climbers are part of one of these expeditions. There's eight climbers, three climbing Sherpas and an expedition leader. And on summit day, which you leave them from camp four. So there, it, you, you go from base camp to camp one, to camp two, to camp three, to camp four, as you're acclimating to the altitude. So summit day, you leave from camp four at midnight and you head toward the summit. And prior to that, the expedition leader had set what's called a turnaround time. Uh, the turnaround time for summit day was 1 p.m. And what that means is that no matter where you are on the mountain, doesn't ma- I don't care if you've made the summit or not, at 1 p.m. you must turn around. And the reason for that is really important, which is that if you don't, then the likelihood that you're going to descend the mountain in darkness is too high. And that's incredibly dangerous, particularly if you're trying to cross something called the Southeast Ridge, which is very, very, very narrow. Um, and if you have a misstep, you're going to fall to your death into Nepal or Tibet, depends on where you fall from. Uh, but neither one of those things is desirable. So the turnaround time is set at 1 p.m. Our three climbers, Hutchinson, Tasky, and Kasitsky, uh, head out. And again, this is when climbing Everest was very popular. So theirs was not the only expedition climbing that day. There were several of them. So there's over 30 people attempting to summit um, on this day. And so there's like a traffic jam, basically. So the going is like really, really slow. So their expedition leader uh, comes up behind them and Hutchinson says to the expedition leader, hey, how long is it going to be till the summit? And the expedition leader says, "Uh, you know, well, it seems like I think it's gonna be about three hours. And then the expedition leader scurries ahead to try to make up time. Hutchinson holds Tasky and Kasitsky back and says, look, I, I think we really have a problem here, which is that. Uh, we just got told it's three hours till the summit, but I'm looking at my watch. It's almost 1130, which means that even if we make up time, we're not going to get there till 2 p.m. And that's an hour past the turnaround time. So it seems like writing's on the wall and we ought to turn around. So this th- notice this kind of goes back to that problem that I said before of those what ifs, right? Like feeling like, oh, I should have kept going because maybe I could have made it because notice these climbers are in no trouble right now. It's 1130 in the morning. They have tons of oxygen, you know, daylight. They're in fine fetter, fettle, you know, they they don't have frostbite. Nothing bad is happening. And they're thinking about turning around when everybody else is going to continue uh, beyond them. So this is a pretty amazing conversation that's occurring, particularly because the expedition leader has gone off ahead of them. Um, but they have the conversation. And so they all three decide that they ought to head back. And that's the end of the story. They live. So, I mean, you can see why this isn't a story anybody knows, right? Like there's, where's the conflict? Where's the heroism? I would argue, by the way, that this was a tremendous act of courage because knowing everybody else was going ahead of you, like think about how you would feel if they all made it to the summit with no problems and you're back at, you know, camp four feeling like a schmuck, right? So um, 
but but they, so they they turn around this act of courage right which is just that we're going to follow the rules as painful as it is to watch everybody else continue up that mountain because we realize we will not be there at 2 p.m right, and, our society would say they lack courage or wimps whatever word you want to attach to it that's right but i would consider that incredibly courageous because think about the counterfactual they're like oh right so anyway they turn around they live so okay so nobody knows this story not surprising i think this is part of the reason why we have this split off between grit and quit. We can see this in this story. Now, here's the amazing thing about these three climbers. I'd be willing to bet a lot of money that you know these people, that you know who they are. You just kind of don't know it. And the, all I would need to know to ask you is, did you read Into Thin Air? Did you see the the movie Everest or the documentary Everest? Because if you saw any of those three things, you know who these three climbers are. You just literally don't remember them. Because these three were part of the expedition that also Doug Hansen was part of and Beck Weathers. And Rob Hall was their expedition leader. So Rob Hall was the one who said to them, it's three hours to the summit and scurried ahead. And we know what ended up happening. Rob Hall got there at 2 p.m. That's an hour past the turnaround time he set. And Doug Hansen arrives at 4 p.m. Rob Hall stayed up on that mountain for two hours waiting for Doug Hansen. Doug Hansen arrives at 4 p.m., immediately collapses and dies like on the spot. And then Rob Hall doesn't have the energy or the oxygen to get back down. And he too dies. Now, I think there's a, a temptation to say, well, but Rob Hall, um, you know, it was selfless to wait up there for Doug Hansen, except that going up Everest is pretty single file. So he could have actually turned back around and grabbed Doug Hansen on the way and gotten back down with him. And he chose to stay up there to allow his client to, to get to the summit in a situation where he was clearly putting both of their lives at danger. Nothing against Rob Hall, by the way. I mean, he was a great alpinist. It's just here you can see someone who is such an expert being really subject to these forces that make it really, really hard for us to quit. And they both perished. But what's interesting is I can clearly show you the bad decision-making there. Everybody knew the turnaround time was 1 p.m. Rob Hall did not follow his own turnaround time. He didn't go and catch his client back on the way down because he already knows that he's going to get there past the turnaround time. He chooses to stay up there. He breaks the rules. And yet he's the hero. He's the hero of the story. Not these three guys. Nobody knows who they are. They're invisible. And I think that's, I mean, think about what a big problem that is for us to make any good decisions about when we're supposed to exit things. For sure. Especially we've been told a narrative and a story of what a hero is and what it looks like and what they're willing to do. Um, for you, I, I want to just shine the light back on you and maybe this will go back into our therapy session. But uh, storytelling is something that is riddled just throughout your writing. And it's clear that you love telling stories. You just went into a story uh, unprompted in an unprompted way. For you, I'm imagining it was clear at some point in your poker career that you were good at it because you were getting validated by the money that was going into your pockets and 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 winning and and et cetera. Writing, when did you first see yourself as someone who was a good writer? When did you start realizing like, wow, I can I can actually do this and and do it quite well? Well, I mean, the real answer is I still haven't. Um do you so not believe to, you don't believe that you, you still don't believe you're you're strong? I think writer. I've gotten better. I think that I've learned a lot. I think that quit is a lot better than thinking in bats. People I don't know if people agree with me. I th I think there 
um I think my editor agrees with me. Um I think what I've makes listened- it what makes it better this time around? I think that it's I am an over explainer. You might have noticed that in this podcast. Uh and I think in thinking in bets, I I really like I I have a strong need to anticipate the nuanced questions that people will ask and answer them, which means explaining lots and lots and lots of different nuance nuances on a topic beyond the, beyond which it's, it's anything more than just feeling very repetitive. Um, And I think that, uh, Thinking in bats had more repetition, unnecessary repetition. Some repetition is really important, but I think that's one thing is that it it had some repetition that didn't need to be there. I think quite a bit actually of repetition that didn't need to be there. Um, and I think that this is a tighter book. I think that I've gotten over that uh, and I'm, I've become a very um, vicious cutter of my own writing. So I'm very good at quitting things that I've written in a, in a lot better way than I was when I wrote Thinking in Bats. Um, I think also that uh, I have, to your point, I've really embraced the power of narrative to bring to life academic concepts. Because what look the, what, the role that I see myself in is a translator like a translator and a synthesizer. Like I'm not talking necessarily about my own research, although I do do my own, I do do research, but um, this book doesn't really have any of my own research in it. Um, But these are very heady, uh, you know, uh, concepts, uh, very, you know, sort of deeply scientific, sort of embedded in, uh, you know, the experimental method. And I view myself as someone who takes those concepts and helps people to digest them without having to read a very dense academic article to be able to do that. Um, And I think that when you write good narrative, you're bringing that to life for people in a way that allows them to, to internalize and make use of the concepts that you're trying to translate and synthesize for that them. Um, so I think I've really embraced that. And in thinking in bets, I think I was very worried about the scientific community seeing what I was writing as valid. And so I went a sort of what I would consider to be a little bit nerdier in that book. Um, and in this one, I was focusing much more, I think, on the consumer of the material. Um, saying, I think I know how to be true to the science. I know who to have read the science to know that they're okay with it. I mean, I was very lucky because like a lot of the work in the book, it comes from like Richard Thaler and Daniel Kahneman, and they read a few versions of the book. So like, I understood that I was, it was fine. Like they were happy with the way that I was translating their work. And that allowed me to focus much more on like, how do I communicate this to the person who's going to, who's going to read it. And so that, I mean, I think that's a lot of the reason why I've become a better writer. First of all, through a great editor, Nikki Papadopoulos, who's an amazing editor. Um, I also have someone in-house who works with me, Michael Craig, uh, who's incredibly helpful in helping me to improve my writing. And um, letting go of the idea that I need to like 
speak about the science in the same way that the papers themselves, like these very dense papers speak about the science. And I think that's also been really helpful for me. You mentioned, uh, you know, you're going to be defending your dissertation in the spring and going back. And- yeah, that's really dense, by the way. You wouldn't want to read my dissertation. That's very dense writing. Why are you Why are you heading back towards academia when um, you have all these other options? Like, what's the draw to to go back toward it? Well, first of all, I love teaching. And I, I sort of think that starting in 2002, I came back to teaching when I started giving talks because talks are just teaching. Um consulting is teaching, right? I mean, that's really what it is. And and I think that um, I'm. it's kind of like, in some ways, I sort of think that teaching for me is a calling. Like, I really love it. I, I come to life when I'm teaching people. Um, just the, the idea of like, I have something in my head. How do I communicate it to another person so they can understand it without losing the substance of the concept. So I think that first of all, that for me is like such a fun thing to do and such an amazing challenge. And then the other thing is that um, I often discover through teaching that I'm totally full of shit, (laughs) which is like the best thing ever. Like for real, like, because sometimes you think you know something and then you're thinking like, how would I explain this to somebody else? And you realize you totally can't. And then you realize the thing I think is totally, like it's just complete BS. And it's amazing, right? And that happened to me a lot when I was teaching poker, for sure. It happens to me in the writing process where I'm like, oh, this would make a great section of the book. And then I start trying to explain it. I'm like, oh my God, I have no idea what I'm talking about. This is so bad. And then I just like throw it out. And those moments are so amazing. And that only comes from teaching. So that I mean, there's all sorts of reasons why I really love teaching. Um, so that's part of the reason why I'm back. I had actually just, you know, there were research questions that I really wanted to answer or or try to get some insight into. I guess you can't ever fully answer them um, for myself. And I got invited to do some research projects with a few people um, over at Penn. One is Marie Schweitzer and then Linnea Gandhi, who's a graduate student, who's the uh, primary on the topic of uh, premortems, which I was just kind of really interested in. And then I, I got invited to do some really cool work with Phil Tetlock and Barb Miller. So Phil Tetlock wrote Super Forecasting, which is an amazing book. Highly recommend it. Um, and they're both just like so smart. And I just didn't want to pass up the opportunity to work with them. So I dove headlong into that. Now, why am I defending my dissertation is a, a slightly different question. And it's a little bit because I can. So let me explain what I mean by that. Um, during COVID, Phil and Barb, uh, invited me to do some work on forecasting with them. They thought that uh, I might be able to create a training for novice forecasters. So they've done a lot of work on ver- you know expert forecasters, these people they call super forecasters who are just really amazing at sort of being able to foresee and predict the future. Um, but now they were doing work on um, with uh, novice forecasters, people who'd never done any forecasting. And they just thought like given my writing and my experience in poker, um, that I might be able to think about how to translate, again, that's sort of how I think about myself, translate some of these really important concepts that can make like super forecasters really amazing to a novice o- audience. So they asked me to come and create some trainings for them um, and and then run some studies on uh, forecasting. So um, I was like, oh, that sounds like fun and it's COVID and I'm like not going anywhere, so sure. Um, and we ended up running four very large scale studies 
um, that actually got really cool uh, results, like pr pretty strong results, big effects. Um, so after that, we were talking about writing that up. And Phil, I think, was the one who said to me, you know, you could, if you're writing, I mean, we're going to write these up anyway, because our, our intention is to publish it. Um, this is enough. This is more than enough for a dissertation. Do you want to just, as you're doing that, it's a little bit different to write a paper than a dissertation. So you, it's a, like a much broader lit review and deeper. So there's a little bit of extra work required, but not that much. And he said, why don't you just write it, you know, turn it into a dissertation. And so I started exploring that with um, the graduate school at Penn. Um, in psychology. And so I'm enrolled. So that's why I say it's a little bit like, because I can. And then there's a secondary reason, which is Lila Gleitman, who was my advisor in the first place way back when, um, one of my best friends on earth, like one of the absolute loves of my life. Um, uh, we sort of started chit-chatting about it. And she was really excited that I might finish my PhD. Um, and uh, so she knew about that and we we had talked about it a lot. And then she, she was, you know, she was pretty old um, when we started talking about it. She was 91 and um, she ended up in the hospital and I saw her on a Thursday and we had been talking about this for like a year. And that last Thursday, we even talked about it. It was very clear that she was like so excited about it and she, she died on that Sunday. And so I, a little bit, I just kind of want to do that for her. You know, it's like, I just kind of think about like she had she was so mischievous and had just like the most amazing sort of like smile and she would get so excited about things and so happy and I just kind of think about her like you know she would sort of clap like this right and I just think about her like when I defend it just being like go Annie you know and I think that's going to bring a lot of joy to my life um and that's I think that that's important to sometimes do things because it's going to make somebody else so happy, even if that person isn't with us anymore. It's I think it's going to make her really happy, happier than it's going to make me. And I think that makes it worth it for me to do it. So I told you I had a first question ready for you, and then you came in with a broken wrist and yeah. I audibled, uh, I guess I quit my first question. So I'm going to come back yeah. to it, which it was going to be about Lila, uh, because I love reading the acknowledgement sections in books. And your last paragraph is, is dedicated to her, but I think you covered it. So you answered my first question without me having to ask it. And that'll just be basically my last question. Um, Annie, if people want to know more about what you're up to, um, certainly I recommend they check out your books. Uh, you are an amazing writer. If people haven't told you that, I'll, I'll be oh, happy. Oh, you're so sweet. I, I feel like I'm someone who's learning to write, I, which is fine. Like, I'm good with that. Like, uh, I hope that every time I write a book, I get better at it. That's what I hope. Yeah. But I don't, I, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Like, well, I, I, think... I guess, I guess that, I guess that's true. I guess that's true. Um, yeah, I guess that's true. All right. I, I feel like I should just own it. I feel like there's a part of me that's like sitting here going like, you know, Oh, I'm just a poker player and a scientist and I'm like doing my best. But, um, I'm going to, okay. I'm just going to own it and be like, okay, people like my writing. So because it's I'll bullshit. Just take that <laughs> like it's, you can, you can take that approach if you want. And I don't mind humility. No, I think I should. I don't know why I'm not owning it. I feel yeah. like this is a good, again, this has been really more a therapy session more than a podcast. Um, no, I'm going to own it. People like, people seem to enjoy the way I write. And that is what makes you a good writer. Right. 
that's that's sort of the very definition of it. So yeah, and there are plenty of highly qualified poker players, and there are plenty of highly qualified, you know, psych- I'm gonna call psychologists or researchers. No, but I, I think you're the combination of all of it, including probably being a mom and being a tennis player and being who you are and your personality, like it all comes together in your writing. Um, but that's one vehicle of you and it's a, it's a damn good vehicle. So I'll just, thank we'll, you. We'll, we'll, we'll leave that there. Uh, but if people want to follow you either on social media or want to hire you, if they're, you know, can take the Amtrak train either from DC. Listen, if you're on the Acela corridor, <laughs> yeah. you can get me to come in person, but I will say when I work with teams, Zoom is fine. I mean, that that's kind of the thing that we all discovered during the pandemic, which was really nice. That like Zoom is really good. I mean, we're talking on Zoom right now. Isn't it just fine? Game changer. Um, Game changer yeah. for, for me. I, I was using Zoom way before the pandemic and then everyone just jumped in and joined. I talked to a client today about it. I was like, I'm used to this. They're kind of going back to using it less and less. And then speaking, uh, yes, in person is great, but there's something beautiful that you can create I mean, we do a ton of stuff virtually and the way you can use the chat and polls and yeah, videos right. and, and by the way, having people in having just a square, so they're not judging on the way you look or I'm short, I'm five, six and a half and no one's looking how tall I am when I'm on zoom. It's great. Um, but Annie, if people want to find out uh, more about you and what you're up to, where's the best place to do that as well? So the best place to go is AnnieDuke.com. Uh, just my name.com, AnnieDuke.com. And you're going to find like links to my books, uh, newsletter, which my newsletter, just so people know, is not, I'm not a every week newsletter person. I'm a, oh, something, I have something interesting that I want to talk about newsletter person, um, uh, which maybe is better because I'm not, I don't feel forced to create content every week. So I'm not going to flood your inbox. I'm only going to send you something when I, when I have something that really interests me. Um, I, also, um, there's also a contact form there also, by the way, just so that you can get in touch with me there. Um, if people want to learn decision-making from me, um, uh, in December, I'm going to be December of 20, cause obviously this will live forever. So I will say December of 2022, um, I'm going to be doing a course on mavenhq.com, uh, which is a cohort course, which is really cool. So you're going to interact with other students also. Um, and you're going to learn decision-making, effective decision-making from me. And then you don't have to go to Wharton um, to take my class. <laughs> you can you can do it just right on Maven, um, at, which hopefully is going to be pretty fun. Um, so that's kind of, you know, the places. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty active on Twitter. Uh, who knows how long I'll stay there. I'm not going to pay $8, $8 for my blue check. I just want to say that. That's stupid. So I'll just lose my blue check. Thank you very much. I don't need to pay $8 a month for it. Well, it's funny because I joke all the time that I get to talk to people whose schools I would never have any shot at getting into, uh, your, your, your school included. Um, and I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson with no blue check. And, uh, if you want to see, and you're fine, right. That's the thing. It's like, I don't care. (laughs) I'm doing okay. I I mean, uh, I have a blue check, but it's not my identity. I don't really care. Take it away. Be my guest. And uh, you can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. We had Mike Neighbors on the podcast. I know. Um, oh, oh my Mike God. Why didn't we talk about Mike Neighbors in this? Mike He's is so awesome. Because Mike's podcast is a standalone gem. It's one of my favorite conversations with I've had over 300 of these. And, yeah. So uh, just everybody should know that Mike Neighbors is appears in the book. He's one of my favorite people on the planet. Um, 
And did he talk about his whole thing with um, having his plan? Yeah. So the reason why it's in there is because, you know, we have this idea that backup plans are bad and, you know, like this is particularly with, and I'm sure you're, you know, given your field, you, you know, this quite well, you know, we do this, we, we send these kids to college and we tell them like, don't actually take any classes and have no backup plan or idea for what you might want to do for a career, just in case you don't get drafted into the NFL or whatever. So, um, so uh, Mike did this amazing thing when he was uh, coaching out West. This was before he was with the Razorbacks with the female uh, team there. He's coaching the Huskies. Um, and he, instead of having his players practice six days a week, he quit at one day a week and had them practice five days a week. And that's when he started being so successful and they started winning so much. And most of the players, not the Kelsey Plums, but most of the players use that extra day a week to create backup plans. So one of them became like a very famous real estate agent, like a very high producing one. One of them's now like a big shot at Nike and so on and so forth. Like they were able to do like internships or like training or like concentrate on their studies. And the team did much better for it, which really is just like blowing up this idea of like, don't ever have a backup plan. That would be really bad because then you won't actually try it, the thing you're doing. Because I think what he realized is, no, the problem is that we all try too hard, right? And we'll try through injuries. We won't take the rest that we need to take because particularly if you're, if you are, if you have made it to a college basketball team, you're probably very, very gritty by nature and actually forcing the players to take that time off to quit a day was so helpful for them. And I love him. I love that story. I'm so happy you had him on. Well, Mike's Mike's the man. There's also this research that came out recently. It studied soccer players in Europe and found that those who had a hobby actually performed better. And which is really unique and cool. Uh, and, and I think for me, I've thought a lot about how I can architect my work. And so like next year, July and August, I'm not planning to see clients, which I've been seeing clients for over 11 years now. And so it's scary as all hell for me to say like, oh no, I'm actually not going to be earning money, so to speak, during July and August. But the truth is the way I set up my programming, it's not set up for that anyway. So it's fine. And then I also started taking off Fridays in the summer. So I like to play golf and go play golf or go do whatever I want or write or podcast. Um, but I think it's one of the underrated things. If you do have the luxury or the privilege of having some autonomy over your schedule, it's, it's not as hard as, as I thought. And um, it's not, it, it I took a sabbatical last spring. What was it like? How long were you off for? Um, so let me just say by off, yeah. I mean, I was still getting lots of copy edits of my book that I needed to deal with. Um, and I was doing some work on my dissertation. What what I did take off from was um, any fre- real fresh write. Like I wasn't thinking about a new book or anything. And I took I took time off from my clients. So I wasn't seeing any clients. How long for, How long was that for? Um, oh, two and a half months. And what was it like for you? Uh, it was amazing. I played a lot of tennis, no broken wrist. But um, I'll tell you the thing I did every morning and every night, I took a three mile hike to the river with my dog. So I was hiking six miles a day. It was amazing. I need that. I mean, it really was. And I came back refreshed and so excited to see my clients. And it was all really good. I want to say, by the way, and I I just want to say as to the backup plans, I just remember today, someone replied to one of my tweets on Twitter today. Um, Great book, Annie. Although there is wisdom in not having a plan B. You lost me at the take calls with recruiters bit. So let me explain what that he's saying there, which is 
I said, if with if like let I was talking to a group of salespeople and someone said, I'm getting a lot of calls from recruiters. Should I take them? And I said, Of course you should. Because you like want to explore, you can develop relationships. Doesn't mean you're going to go take another job, but it allows you to develop relationships with people and also just to sort of explore the landscape. So this is, but this is a very common misconception from what I would call the portfolio holder. So uh Mike Neighbors is a portfolio holder. In other words, he's the he he sort of has each player has individual interest. He has an interest in the whole portfolio. Okay. So um, so this becomes one of these things where the portfolio holder will say, I don't want anybody to have a backup plan because maybe then they're checked out. And this is what gets followed with this is if the employee isn't all in, then they're better off leaving. The moment they start taking calls with recruiters, they've already checked out mentally. And I would say, no, that's not true. That why, why would that be true? And if you think about it from the employee's perspective, it makes them appreciate if they love their job, it's going to make them appreciate it more. They're going to realize that the other things aren't for them. And the problem is for that individual, and you're doing a huge disservice to them is like, what if you hire bad leadership and now they're in the horrible, toxic situation that they can't get out of? You've, you're telling them they can't take a recall from the recruiter to like hedge against that or protect against that situation. If it's a startup, what if the company goes out of business? Should they have no other relationships? Right. And and the thing is, that as as you you know, as, as Mike neighbors discovered. Um, people are happier for that exploration. Same thing with having hobbies. They're happier. They perform better for that exploration. So I really wish that that particular idea of like, don't have a plan B would go away. It goes back to nuance. And for me, I saw this, I started my career working mainly with high school athletes. I would work with some pros, but a lot of my clients were high school athletes and they wanted to play college athletics and some school would show interest in them. And then they'd say, all right, that's where I'm going to school. And I would sit them down. I'd be like, I'd be like, no, you got to talk to a lot of other ones. You got to go explore and see what's going on. And and the truth is that school's job or role was to try to get as many people interested in their school so that they could then choose the best qualified candidates to make right. their team successful. Because but they're the portfolio holder. Because they, they, yeah, they have ownership over the situation. And for whatever reason, we don't value optionality enough. And when you have the options, it doesn't mean you don't, you still get to choose, but to have choice is such a gift to have. I, I swear to you, Annie, in the last, this is a Wednesday, in the last three days, I've had conversations about options with my client work with 30 different executives. I've had probably three different conversations about what are the options that are available and let's go explore them. And you said something earlier that really stuck with me is about your identity is to really be like a curious explorer and, and find things. Like to me, that that makes me feel alive when I go and explore things that usually have to do with humans. Like when I get to yeah. explore, that's why I love the podcast. But um, yeah, we we often think that we're being disloyal or we are going against the wishes or, or, or we're fearful of them finding out. But to your point, what often happens is if you've got a great gig with a great boss and you go interview somewhere else and you're like, oh, wow, I'm actually appreciative of how we do things. What are your point? Maybe that person becomes a client because there's an opportunity or there's a relationship to be formed there or you learn about their processes and you bring them back. Like there's so much value. And I know you're interacting with a lot of sports people um, because David Epstein and I hosted a retreat. And when we said to people, Hey, right. who, do you, who else should be there? They're like, Oh, we, you should have Annie there. And all that. So I know all these people that, that you're connected to, 
the best sports minds spend a lot of time with other people in other industries and learning from them, learning from other people in other sports. They'll go on tours and they'll study and they'll, they'll spend time with people because of, I'll go to David Epstein. When you have a range of ideas and you can learn from all of these There's different There's a range of them. My bookshelf right there. It's so it's all out time. because yeah, it's David so and I were having a conversation for Powell's books. And so I, I put his, I put his book right there so that people could see it. It's such a lovely book. People, Everybody should go get that book. So anyway, we could keep going on and on. Yeah, because by the way, David Epstein would tell everybody to take a recall from the recruiter too. I mean, I don't know who I'm trying to think of like, I the logic of, I guess you're not being loyal is the main argument there or it's yeah, getting what, a distraction. Is look it at a how distraction? can it possibly be good for you as an employer, as a basketball coach, as whatever you are, how can it be, how can it be, in your best interest to set those people up to fail. It can't possibly be in your best interest. You should be creating happy people who have lots of options for themselves where if the world changes, they can go. And the thing is that honestly, if someone call, if someone has a call with a recruiter and it turns out that they love what they're talking about, um, you know what? They shouldn't have been in your company anyway. You should be happy that they left. But mostly they're going to stay and they're going to be a better employee for having stayed and having done that exploration. You know, and that's that's what Mike, that's what Mike neighbors discovered. If I give people time off and let them do internships or focus more on their studies or but, you know, Kelsey Plum was in the gym on that sixth day. Okay, it's choice. It's It's just choice. It's autonomy and choice. And when you have people that feel as though they have choice or feel they have autonomy they feel empowered they feel like they have equity and ownership over what they're doing and they're choosing to be a part of it like that's the idea of buy-in versus all-in and it's like you know get we need to get people to buy in which i know has a poker connotation as well but like buying in no like i i don't want them to just do what i'm telling them to do and buy in like no get them to be all in and how do you get them to be all in let them choose it make sure there's autonomy make sure there's freedom give them empower them to have a voice so those things, I mean, I think deeply about, you know, one of the big takeaways for me from today was actually your how much value you put in other people and whether it was tennis or Lila and how that drives your motivation. And I think we often forget, I, there's another podcast guest, Owen Eastwood, who wrote a book called Belonging, which is fantastic. Uh, and like that idea, we all do want to belong. And like, I hear that in you and for another podcast another day, I'd I'd be curious because poker seems like an isolated um, activity. Um, However, I'm sure you had a fraternity of people that Mm -hmm. you developed relationships with there as well. So I respect your time too much to keep going. Uh, This has been a blast. Uh, Annie, it's great to meet you. Looking forward to meeting you in person at some point um, when you're down in the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, Until then, thanks for coming on the podcast and sharing uh, all of your wisdom. Well, this was a a really good conversation, but I feel a little bit like I should pay you for it. (laughs) Well, I'll send I'll send a uh, an invoice to you. And uh, and you're not the first person to say whenever I hear someone say this felt more like a therapy session. I take it as a compliment. I don't know how they feel about it, but uh, but thanks for coming on. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. I've really embraced the power of narrative to bring to life 
academic concepts. Because what look the what the role that I see myself in is a translator, like a translator and a synthesizer. Like I'm not talking necessarily about my own research, although I do do my own I do re- do research, but um, this book doesn't really have any of my own research in it. Um, but these are very heady, uh, you know, uh, concepts, uh, very, you know, sort of deeply scientific, sort of embedded in, uh, you know, the experimental method. And I view myself as someone who takes those concepts and helps people to digest them without having to read a very dense academic article to be able to do that. 